A union town, all down the line, this is a union town. This is President Ron Herrera, and you are listening to Welcome to Uniontown, a podcast that delves into the everyday issues, iconic leaders, and allies of the labor movement. We get to know the backstories of workers and the journey of leaders, from their first job to their greatest victory. The show covers every aspect of the Los Angeles labor movement, from the desert to the sea. This is Hugo Romero, and you're listening to Welcome to Uniontown with my co-host, President Ron Herrera. Today we welcome to Uniontown Reverend James Lawson. He is one of the civil rights movement's leading theoreticians and tacticians in the African-American struggle for freedom and equality. On the eve of his assassination, Martin Luther King Jr. called him the leading theorist and strategist of nonviolent in the world. He's also a Los Angeles hero, having worked with hotel workers, janitors, home care workers, and undocumented immigrant youth in historic organizing victories. We hope you enjoy our discussion as much as we did. I hope everything is well with you. Yes, I think about as well as I can be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's going on? Right. Thank you for coming on our the County Feds podcast. I know that uh, Hugo is very appreciative, and this is history for him. And it's great that uh, you took the time out to talk with us today. Pleased to be able to do it, Ron. Good morning, Reverend Lawson. So, you know, as we mentioned today, we want to talk about really your your story, your LA story. There's so much richness to it for really our affiliates and the broader audience of memories you have in the LA labor movement, which really you've really shaped through your teaching. I know one of the things you talk about is you've been arrested more for labor rights than civil rights throughout your lifetime. Mm-hmm. And that's key as to why it is that you put so much emphasis in the labor movement as it relates to your origins in the civil rights movement. And how you really marry the two, right? You, you, you've emphasized the need to marry the two to take on plantation capitalism, what you talked about. So I was wondering if you could share with us how you came to L.A. and why you decided to make it your home after having been instrumental in the South and having done so much work there. And All right, I'll try to do this very quickly. It's a big question, a long question, a question that covers at least five decades now. In 1958, I dropped out of graduate school in Ohio to move to Nashville, Tennessee, to participate in the emerging movement that I identified as the Rosa Parks Martin Luther King Nonviolent Movement of America. Uh, That movement is a part of the larger movement called the Civil Rights Movement which began in 1866 with the first Civil Rights Act passed by Congress, which said that everyone born in the United States and its territories is a citizen of the United States. So I want to lift up the fact that it's essential for us to see the civil rights movement as a large umbrella movement of which there are many many sub-movements. In any case, I had been for 12 years, 17 years, working with Martin Luther King Jr. 
in 13 of those years until his assassination during the Memphis sanitation strike, the public, the garbage workers strike of which I was uh, perhaps the primary Memphis uh, pastor engaged in it and helping to organize it and work with it and organizing the support base for that strike of 1300 mostly African-American workers who were working for the city government, but living in poverty. And that became the first campaign of the nonviolent movement of America in which I participated in which a labor worker strike was at the center and was strike was the major nonviolent tactic and a bishop in Los Angeles of our Methodist church uh, wanted me to come to LA as the pastor of the Holman United Methodist Church. And I reluctantly, hard to break away from the Southeast and from Memphis where I'd been for 12 years, I did after a hard personal struggle decide that I should be in Los Angeles at um, Holman United Methodist Church. So that's how I came to LA in 1974. And of course, I came with some reputation as being involved with Dr. King. In fact, I was called by many people the nonviolent teacher and mind of our movement. So I came, I came to LA with that reputation um, as well. And uh, as a consequence of the Memphis sanitation strike, I came to recognize the priority in my life of working for social change, personal change, but I became, I came to recognize that my first vocation as pastor of local congregations, uh, helping them to understand the issues of the spirit and the mind and the heart and the soul as applied to daily living and to the issues in the community and in the nation as a whole. And so I relish my history in LA where now I've spent the bigger, biggest part of my life as, as an adult uh, LA. So I've had the privilege here of working with uh, AFL-CIO in particular, local 11 uh, unite here I began with them back in 19, in the 1980s. Uh, one of my favorite stories <laughs> would be how Maria Elena de Rosso, now a senator in our state legislature, became the president of Local 11 and called me and asked me to become, become a teacher of nonviolent philosophy and methodologies. And so the that launched there for my official relationships with the Labor Federation. And uh, one of my favorite stories about that is <laughs> uh, how on any number of occasions, Maria Elena Durazo and I in planning our activities and planning our campaigns often agreed that we would in the demonstration that might be a justice demonstration at the corner of Figueroa and Exposition, for an example, when we were working on 
uh, labor issues at USC, we agreed that we would stick close to each other so that when we were arrested, we could continue talking and planning and strategizing in the ride to the jail station and in the holding pen where often 15 or 20 of us or 40 of us would be lodged as we were being booked, we, we could continue our thinking about the struggle and what we were doing and what we had yet to do. So on uh, two or three occasions, and, uh, we were able to make that happen. We used uh, civil disobedience in the campaign as an opportunity to continue consulting and examining the issues and helping to plan our the work uh, of of the uh, of a strike or a, a sit-in demonstration, of course, a variety of kinds of nonviolent tactics that we used. So that's an example of organizing <laughs> and scheming. Yeah. Excellent use of that time. Big pardon. It's an excellent use of the time. Yes, that's right. We're, we're even going to jail was a strategy <laughs> session. <laughs> And getting ready to be booked was a strategy session, you know, was a planning, planning moment. So, so, so have I covered part of that now, Hugo? Excellent. That explains Excellent. where I'm coming from. As a pastor ordained in United Methodist Church and the Methodist tradition of Christianity, I maintain that local religious congregations most of whose members are working people. That was especially true in my congregations in Memphis, in Tennessee, and Los Angeles. They were 99% Black congregations. Economic justice can emerge as well as gender, racial justice, as well as a community that we can call the beloved community. That is a community that has minimal violence against people. Dismantling of the violent culture in which we live, especially uh, the, the violence of the spirit. Because, you know, the January 6th assault upon a wonderful Capitol building that is a symbol of our uh, legislative governance and all um, shows you how mean and despicable, despicable violence is. Mm -hmm. It has no justice or mercy in its mind. And uh, if you watch those scenes, and there, of course, we're still discovering many of them, but I've tried to watch as many as I can to study them. If you watch those scenes, you see minimal traces of people being engaged in developing the politics of United States for all people. And you see a maximum of beating up on people, on yelling uh, 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 unfit and unsuitable slogans like the N-word we know was being used all across the Capitol. And the race, racist slurs, you see, and I assume also sexist slurs as well, because these, these tend to go hand in hand. 
So you see there the spirit of violence in its worst form. So the religious congregations must be engaged in the economic well-being of their people who want to sustain and support themselves and want to have access to all of the aspirations of life. And I maintain that for me, my major ally in that pursuit is the organizing of working people into unions that have in mind justice for the community, <laughs> economic opportunity and justice. I don't know if that's muddled or if that's fairly clear. That was phenomenal. That was phenomenal, Reverend Lawson. I've had the opportunity, the honor, the privilege to march alongside of you here in Los Angeles. Uh, I was with you the 50-year anniversary of the uh, famous Memphis sanitation strike. Mm -hmm. I had the honor of being with you here this past year in Montgomery, Alabama, where yep. you joined uh, Kent Wong and, and I was part of that contingent. Right. As a, as a president of the Federation, as a first um, minority vice president of the Teamsters on the West Coast, you're a labor hero of mine. You depict everything that a young organizer, a young uh, union official should base his foundation on. I told a story, I continue telling this story that you were one of the chief architects of the 1968 sanitation strike. And uh, I'm going to continue to teach young organizers of your involvement there. I told that story this morning, as a matter of fact. Mm -hmm. But what is your message to Hugo? What is your message to a young union official, a young organizer in uh, 2021? What would you like to see them accomplish through a foundation of the work that you've done? <laughs> My goodness. Well, Ron, I, I appreciate very much the, the, the uh, number of occasions when we've been together, together in the same place, both close to each other, then separated by a large crowd in different ways. For young organizers, number one, I would say that you have the responsibility of developing your own gift of life as fully as you can. So there are ancient scriptures that have been important to Western civilization as well from the Hebrew and Christian Bibles. They agree that the major task of each person is to love God with heart and mind and soul and strength and the neighbor as yourself. Uh, as a theologian and a biblical student, and our aspiration that uh, we can do God's will on earth in terms of economic, social, gender, uh, racial justice, that we have to have a Los Angeles that is accessible to all the people who live here. 
that it's fair that we have to have an economy that allows every man and woman who understand the necessity of being actively engaged in supporting their lives, working in order for that to happen. So young organizers need to remember you have power. Power is the capacity to accomplish purpose, to accomplish aspirations, to accomplish using a pencil to write, <laughs> or on the other side, organizing a union so that the members can, as a community of people, have the power to accomplish safety and working environments and wages and benefits that enable them to achieve, in a sense, the fullness of life. So that's, it seems to me that, so each of us has that. In the same way that uh, when uh, Tampa Bay and Kansas City met in the Super Bowl just recently, every athlete has to push his capacity to play the game intellectually and spiritually and energetically and enthusiastically. Any athlete that does not do that work, therefore does not really join the team. That sport a metaphor is in my mind, one of the best human metaphors we have for what each young organizer can do. And in those years between 12 and 30, 35, you are forming your life because uh, not, your body doesn't mature at age 12 or 19. We now know that brain, that the brain, the human brain does not really mature fully until the late 20s and early 30s. That that work is critical work all your life to cultivate your gift of life. You, you are multifaceted, multi-talented. You have to have the uh, zeal to see to it that you learn and constantly learn and you continue to grow and expand in your capacity of living. And then the, the second thing I would say is to to, uh, to learn from taking care of your own self, your own body, your own goals, your own diets, your own health, or at the same time that you're taking care of yourself, you are sustaining a family and supporting a union and uh, growing uh, in a religious congregation. So I say to learn, therefore, that the nonviolent theory of history and living, we must learn it and put it far ahead of any uses of violence. January 6th is an example of violence. You can see in that, in those mob scenes at the Capitol building, how inadequate is a violent demonstration to lay out what you're trying to show. Uh, invite you to, I invite young organizers to, I invite you to examine the rich history 
and learn from it and use it in organizing. And then rich history of labor organizing, union organizing in the law, in United States. The, the labor movement, like the church movement, the religious movements, does a lot of self-analysis. But we have not yet done enough of that to come out where we need to be, especially at the local level. Um, well, sometimes we are handicapped by the national, international levels. I think that's correct. But in Los Angeles, we have watched the union movement move to over 200 local unions and more than 800,000 members. It may be larger than that now, but we've seen that happen. So Los Angeles has become a city more friendly not friendly enough because the wages are still not what they ought to be. The benefits and wages for work have not reached the level of truth and justice. So that must be the ongoing task of unions and religious bodies in Los Angeles. We have- Thank you for bringing that up, Reverend Lawson. I have in front of me your book, um, Nonviolence and Social Movements. And many years ago, you signed it. And you wrote, Hugo, the struggle has only begun. And I was like, what? You, you know, I sat on it and I didn't understand it at the time. And I pondered it. Um, and I think over the years as they get older and specifically over the last four years under the Trump administration, I understand it more. I understand it more, as you mentioned, with wages and poverty uh, still being permanent in Los Angeles, even where we have a very strong, robust labor movement. And really that this is a, a lifelong struggle, a yeah. lifelong fight. And more and more over the, the years, that sets in and that, that helps with teachings like yours uh, frame sort of the path forward. You know, I want I appreciate Ron's question and I truly take the advice, your advice and the advice of, of all mentors alike uh, very seriously in, in approaching the work. But I did want to just build on that and, and ask about what are some of the traps in organizing and activism that are set? Because I'm sure over the years, you've dealt with a lot of personalities, egos, internal conflict that, in my opinion, pose a threat to the broader movement. What are some of those traps and how have you dealt with them uh, over the years as you've mentored and taught hundreds of organizers and activists? And, and how do we avoid this to, to collectively move the work forward? The most uh, challenging trap is the way in which our culture educates us away from a nonviolent life and a nonviolent understanding of justice and truth, the way in which our culture orients us in terms of the only power that creates change is violence. Uh, I faced a lot of that in the 60s and 70s, especially in, uh, from young people, but also from their parents and their grandparents. The notion that the way you make something happen in the United States is through violence, which is totally wrong. It's not true at all of our history. Unfortunately, very often the books uh, are only in the last 40, 50 years 
being published and written that show power of nonviolent struggle, that love is greater than hatred and can dissolve hatred, that cooperation with people, even when it's in some competitive environments, is how the human body works and is how we best work in community. So I think that the major trap is how we get taught differently in conventional ways of thinking. And let's notice that the history of labor organizing and the history of organizing around human rights is unconventional leadership. It is a leadership that puts the emphasis upon the human scene and human power, people power, rather than on individual power, uh, and rather than going it alone. So for, for example, one of the examples that comes out of my own life is I, I doubt, I, I have not read very much, I've, as much as I should have read, but uh, the Birmingham campaign of 1963, which produced the Washington March, the, the March on Washington in August 28th of 1963. In the accounts that I've read of that period of time, I've noticed something that's nice, very wonderful from my perspective. My work is hardly ever mentioned. In actual fact, I was in Birmingham in 1958, in 1959, in 1960, in 1961, in 1962, in 1963, in the Birmingham campaign as the volunteer staff of that campaign. I did counseling in the field of nonviolence in Birmingham in all those years. Uh, I painted the picture of how you resist racism and segregation and how you fight it, how you change it in all those years. But in a very large way, I was in the underground. I was behind the scenes working as an organizer of that movement. And I'm not commending that to you, to anyone, except it is to say that organizing is far more about helping the people you're working with come to see the character in themselves by which they do the work. And your help is not minimal, but it's the work of helping them creatively apply their character and their well-being to their struggle. Now, some, I will say quickly, of course, that some organizers must emerge and become major people because their work should train and teach them <laughs> a lot about the work of labor and organizing and the condition of working people and how the uh, economic injustices can be uh, dismantled. So some organizers should emerge in leadership position uh, and must because their, tr their work is a excellent training ground. It's the school by which they become more aware of their work as leaders in a union and in the community or as leaders also in a religious congregation. So uh, some organizers 
because of their labor and work uh, must, we have to have many more Maria Elena de Rossos who become uh, elected people because the impact of working families must be more deeply felt in the electoral and appointed arena uh, at every level of government. Thank you. But our listeners must know that the immense amount of courage it took you to do this work is just incredible to me. And then your humbleness, because you're an unsung hero of the civil rights movement, uh, but you're my hero without a doubt. It's I I admit that, and I'm I'm very very proud of it. But to the young listeners out there who see films, video, read books, um, you know, hear lectures about Dr. King, what is your biggest story that you would like to project the mission of Dr. King? What would you like to tell those young folks out there that are listening, the young labor uh, members, the union members, the labor leaders, what would you like them to know about Dr. King? Well, that that is a, a huge issue also. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's my, it, one way of approaching that uh, is to say that, so the Supreme Court decision of 1954 that said that the Constitution does not sustain segregation. In one way was the opening shot because use, the use of law is a nonviolent way of moving for essential equality. But the other major shot was the Montgomery bus boycott in which a young man, 24, 25 years of age, Martin Luther King Jr., emerged as the advocate of equality and liberty and justice for all. So that movement one of the campaigns of the larger civil rights movement, but that Rosa Parks King campaign is the huge engine. It was like the nuclear power of the nuclear weapons, uh, the height of power available in the universe uh, out of the mass missiles of, of atomic energy. So that campaign, 1953 to 1973, was like that kind of energy and power released in the country. And MLK, Martin Luther King Jr., became the icon and advocate, not simply for Montgomery, but then in all the years of his young life then, he was a spokesperson and the icon for social, economic, political change. But also he was the icon for unconventional leadership, the leadership that organizes labor unions <laughs> as a community of struggle and resistance for working families that enable them to build a modicum of economic access and opportunity. So I think that's the way I would try to put, 
put Martin Luther King. He's, he's the icon of the first major resistance in the 20th century to the nation becoming a, a nation of impoverishment. And remember now, that for all the boasting about our economy, the Poor People's Campaign of 2021 says that 140 million Americans have a daily struggle just to stay alive in the United States. Their incomes are too low. They're, they are working families. They have children. Their incomes are too low. And their benefits are too low. Wow. The Jeff Bezos and the Walton family of Arkansas become richest families in the world. Well, and too often the Chamber of Commerce and political figures celebrate that wealth, ignoring the 140 million people, ignoring homelessness, ignoring how sexism has prevented women from working where they had the talent and qualifications to work. But even more so, racism has stopped brown and black people from working where we can work. This is the worst form of the oppression in the United States, priving ordinary people like ourselves of the work and labor and opportunities for access that historically the systems in the United States uh, have robbed us of. That's not, a, not good English, but I wanna say it. That we, we have been robbed and stolen from in the United States by our economy. So that economic justice work I count as the most important work. So King becomes the icon around the world of, of the notion that the human race has not completed its journey or effectively succeeded in its journey. There are a lot of signs of hope, but there are too many structures of racism, sexism, violence, and plantation capitalism in the United States and elsewhere that have to also be dismantled before a different world of opportunity and access and justice and equality will fully emerge. And I believe that is the goal of the human race. Powerful Reverend Lawson. You know, nobody would have noticed that that wasn't good English. You have such a powerful voice that uh, I would have never caught that. <laughs> but we want to be respectful of your time. I, I do want to let you know that our podcast is actually called Welcome to Uniontown, which I know is where coincidentally you were born in Uniontown. Mm -hmm. uh, and some that's amazing. It's almost fate would have it that you would be a union icon in los angeles in the country you were born the right name city enough ron wants to say thank you i just want to say thank you reverend lawson for giving los angeles the opportunity here today to listen to your teaching and your mentorship truly amazing and the best of health to you and and hope to see you soon and uh get back to normality whatever that means at this point in life but thank you so much well thank you ron uh, labor center federation has been a major ally with me and i want to just simply urge you to go on Eight hundred thousand union members is wonderful but it needs to be 
2 million or 3 million <laughs> in the Los Angeles region over the next decade or so. So let's, let's go on and see what will happen because uh, I think it's, it's marvelous. And I want to thank all of you for allowing me to have the opportunity to work uh, with one of the passions of my life. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Reverend Lawson. Struggle has only begun, as you said. Peace. This is a union town, a union town, all down the line. This is a union town, a union town, all down the line. This is a union town. Hey, this is President Ron Herrera thanking you and my co-host, Brother Hugo Romero, for joining us on this episode of Welcome to Uniontown.